Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food Podcast, presented by Canon Press and Great Homeschool Conventions. Coming back at you from the corner of a tiny studio room on 207 I, North Main. I Moscow, feel under an interrogation. Oh, yeah, you're a little lit. Lights, you you're are, a little bit lit. You're the interrogator. So when do you think we get up the nerve to start filming these? I don't know. <laughs> well, as we said, the move to a TV show requires many things. Yeah, it requires <laughs> me mostly to shave and... <laughs> You've quit wearing and, painty and, overalls, though, so I feel like we're halfway okay, there. I haven't worn a painty overall in some time. I don't think I... Did I ever wear painty overalls? Muddy, sorry. Muddy overalls. Muddy? Did, when did I wear muddy overalls? You'd come in with the boots. They weren't overalls. I'm, 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 I'm exaggerating. Paint, totally paint. Yeah, paint spattered jeans. Yeah, like I've, Mud I boots. have, I have overalls. Wearing been them like, though. <laughs> yeah, I, they're, they're like outdoor mud, snow, cold. They're like insulated. I don't think I've. Worn I think those. I'm probably thinking about you're making stuff up. I think so. The pair of bogs. Yes, the pair of bogs. Bogs for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah. Does it really matter? Do we have to clean up? I feel like that would ruin the show if we, <laughs> if we clean up. Okay. So, Stories Are Soul Food, episode 44. We're not quite there yet, but we are at 33, I think. 33? Yep. Okay. And we're jumping into Ashtown. The Ashtown Burial Series, specifically. The time, the time has come. Uh, book the first. Ashtown Burials 1. Oh, yeah. That was good. Nate does, a, Nate does a good narrator voice. Welcome to Ashdown. <laughs> In a world. <laughs> In a world where one man. <laughs> yeah. One child. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So Ashdown Burials, book one. This is um, a pretty definitive series in my, in my life. But then so are they all. I haven't had that much of a life and I only have three series. So. But so, they, they all have their own different so ways each series in which they're... Gets, yeah. Gets a, a decade. Yeah, each series is, is connected to... But also, I mean, they've kind of marked different phases of my existence. In different phases, not just of my yeah. career, but of life and things that I was, I was tackling and trying to accomplish. So Ashtown is the series that was the, a big professional transition. It's the series, you know, we, like we discussed before, that was the last... Big thing I was doing with Random House as Random House is becoming Penguin Random House. And then uh, now I, I'm over at HarperCollins. And, yeah. you know, that's where are. Outlaws is, right? Yeah. Outlaws of Time was over there in Hello Ninja, the Hello Ninja books. Right. And um, yeah. So Ashtown was big and Cupboards was, was successful. And, um, successful in as we've discussed in like less than significant promotion less than significant launching you know things not quite working uh this great uh my publisher whom a woman whom i just really adored because she was a she was my woodhouse aunt so my, my publisher what does that mean so woodhouse has oh, a huge amount okay. of respect for ants as powerful, powerful right figures in one's life, <laughs> like so you the power as the old battle axe. I'm trying the power, <laughs> the powerful role of of a really, really fire breathing ant. You know, Woodhouse. Yeah. So, an aunt Aunt Dahlia was basically, or Dahlia, mm. uh, to use the the more correct Woodhouseian Dahlia. Dahlia. Uh, Dahlia. My publisher at the time was was my aunt Dahlia. Basically, I and mean, she was. And for those who don't know, a publisher is a position at a publishing company. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Not, so, not the house itself. Yeah. So my, there's my editor, there's the editorial director, there's all these different, you know, there's the copy editor, the assistant editor. There's a lot of different people who touch, uh, touch your manuscript, but the publisher is the one who's, you know, the boss of all of that and acquired the project and, you know, it has to sign off on that acquisition. I mean, the editor is actually the one who pursued it. The editorial director signed off on it. But the publisher was the one who really, uh, you know, was the, the general. And she 
was so much fun. I mean, she was just fantastic and hilarious and unpredictable and always had her hair up in a pencil and her glasses on the end of her nose. And, you know, but it, you're, you're on Broadway, you're in a skyscraper on Broadway and she's got her hair up in a pencil and her glasses on the end of her nose and she's spitting fire. Awesome. And yeah, she was a blast. So she, uh, in conversation, she was part of this, but she was told me basically like, let's really take a shot. You know, let's, let's really, let's really go. And, Coverage is doing super well, and it did super well while we kind of stepped our own, on our own suit, shoelaces. Um, in the you know in the launch and right the thing uh, and what like what thinking about what that means for people at home. This is it's hard to really comprehend. I, mean, I mentioned before that like Lee Pike got published in May, and then they dropped one hundred coverage December twenty sixth of the same year. Yeah, that's yeah. that's crazy if yeah. you think in terms of scheduling your hits. Like, it's, like, it's insane it's a really weird weird decision yeah and it was sort of like it was kind of an odd thing of hey which one are we launching like you have to ignore one and so there was a lee pike made a lot of newberry noise and then but it was a surprise book like people were saying like why haven't i heard about this or why wasn't this pushed and it's like well because people are already you know in the industry as far as the machine of marketing goes they're already trying to focus on cupboards but then, you know, like I mentioned before, the publicist left and everything was crazy and there was no tour for either book. And by the time, by the, time the dust settled, nothing had happened for either book. <laughs> Which you is know. pretty rough. I mean, the, the, yeah. that's the reason you go for the huge Yeah, and it's like, here's the, here's the debut. Both books were successful, but almost, you know, in a grassroots accidental way. And my editor at the time said, you know, this is the most it's the realest way to measure success is when a book just builds its own base. So people who read it liked it enough that they are your marketing team. Yeah. And you don't have, you're not paying marketers. You're not advertising. You got, you get a thousand people to read it, but the, all of them say, Hey, you have to read this to their friends and yeah. you know, and so on. And this is prior to social media really mattering uh, in any kind of serious way. So 2007. And so Lee Pike dropped May 22nd, 2007. And then 100 coverage drops December 26, 2007. And at the time, I'm, I was a total rookie. So, you know, I got told, like, actually, that's a great week to drop. And you thought, it's after Christmas I'm and like, before the, the New Year. <laughs> yeah. And, and I got to explain to me, actually, that is a huge entertainment week. And it really is. So uh, that week after Christmas accounts for a huge percentage of the box office traditionally and other, and other things. So I, it wasn't entirely nonsensical. It was not nonsensical placement. But it was nonsensical placement to drop it quietly, you know. Right. And there was stuff that was not, not like nothing happened. But, you know, things were done. There were primarily school promotions. Like school promotions happened and, and some stuff like that. But anyway, it was weird. And it was known to be weird. And my fantastic publisher and editor and editorial director at the time, everybody knew it was weird. And it was like, ah, you know, oops. <laughs> right. Um. And it sucks because in retrospect, it's like, well, that was the debut. Like, and I'm proud of those early books. I have no problem with that. And it, there's, it's given me a perspective on how little that actually matters in the long run. Because the industry is desperate for that grassroots stuff yeah. now, right? That's how they organize oh, yeah, most always, of it. Yeah. Always. It's what they want. It's what everybody wants. And so it was kind of like water on the altar, honestly. <laughs> it's like we put some water <laughs> on the altar and it still caught fire. Stuff still went well. Um. So I'm really grateful for that. And when you sit here 14 years later, uh, the books, nobody cares about the release. Nobody cares about the first mm -hmm. three months. You know, like it just doesn't matter. The books still exist. Lee Bike still exists. Cover still exists. All this to say, I'm finishing, uh, I'm, I'm finishing up The Chestnut King and my Aunt Dahlia is saying to me, um, you know, Bertie, you rotten worm. <laughs> let's, let's take a shot. Let's take a shot for real. Let's not like, we're going to, we're going to really do this. And we want to, we want to go after something that's got literary sophistication, but we also want, you know, the commercial viability of cupboards. We want that, but we, we, you know, we want you to take your, your next shot. What's your next series? And so I spent a lot of time mapping Ashtown and thinking through Ashtown and what it was going to be. And the 
the changes that I was going to make. You know, I didn't want to write high fantasy. I didn't want to write with other worlds in the same way. Um, I didn't want to write with a kid discovering his powers. I wanted I wanted to write something that was um, a couple kids in a place that anybody can relate to. Same concept as uh, cupboards in that way. So real world, you don't have to go off to a magical boarding school in England. You're going to start in a normal place, a place that's very, very familiar. And then the doors are going to start to open up to you into the weirdness, like into the, into this parallel society that uh, you're not aware of, that you were not aware of before. And so with Ashtown, as I built it and as I built the world, I really did build the world first. Like the world came first. And the idea of an order of explorers, you know, something that was founded by Brendan the Navigator, real character, a monk from the British Isles who crossed the Atlantic. Probably discovered America first of the Europeans. Is that right? Uh, well, or just did it in a, in I mean, a boat? Just, I think just did it impressively in a, in a leather boat. <laughs> yeah. Um, so no, I wouldn't say the first. I think the Vikings were there first, but it's early. Right. Um, there were people. So people had gotten here first. <laughs> right. So, but first of the, the Northern whiteies wearing a monk's habit to, to make it. Yeah. Uh, so historical character, Brendan the Navigator founded the Order of Brendan. The concept being that he founded an order of monks that's sort of like what happened with the uh, Knights of St. John the Baptist, uh, now known as Knights of Malta, Knights of Templar, you know, Templars, that kind of thing, where you had a, a military order. So you take a monastic order, the concept of a monastic order, and have it be an, a missionary order slash order of explorers. But the goal was to defeat evil around the entire globe to capture the undying, like the really dangerous evils, the demonic and the, the different powers, um, all these different things that were super, super evil, uh, either immortals or the things that created the immortals, and to send them to the farthest reaches of the earth to imprison them in Ashtown, to bury them, so the yeah. burials. And so this is the world I was building. Like, okay, so Brendan the Navigator, he has his, his order of monks who are hunting down uh, the undying darkness, confining it, imprisoning it, and sending it away to the farthest corner of the world at the time to bury it, where you know, it will just be out of the way. And so at the time, that meant crossing the Atlantic, which was insane, and then crossing the land on the other side of the Atlantic until you come to a giant freshwater sea. And this, you know, the weirdness of a freshwater sea, think about that, just yeah. in mythology. So if you're talking about the old instructions of like, you sail west, uh, sail west through this the- This many weeks. This many weeks through the, the frozen waters, so like you're going through icebergs and stuff, and, and you come to this, this faraway land, uh, and then you have to cross that land for this many weeks. And when you've crossed that land for this many weeks, you're going to find a giant freshwater sea. And on the banks of that freshwater sea, you find Ashtown, which is like the equivalent of their supermax prison. Okay, gotcha. Like this is their supermax prison for the things that they don't want to escape, the things that are undying. And you're going to bury the burials. You're going to bury these undead things these undying undead evil beings and creatures permanently like this is the life sentence for immortals so yeah this is where brendan is saying i'm going to store these things until christ comes back basically until tell armageddon we have to sit on them somewhere so he sends them as far away as he possibly can except for that freshwater sea turns out to be lake michigan and ashtown is in wisconsin and so as society yeah. is, as, as society has grown up around it and civilizations expanded, you have this place still, the Ashtown estate of the order of Brendan, still a supermax facility, you know, sitting on these burials that they've kind of forgotten to care about. Um, and it's in Wisconsin. It's right there. Right. And that's, that's, you answer part of that question, but is there a reason, Anna, Anna Kay asks, is there a reason Ashtown's set on Lake Michigan rather than Lake Superior, where there's a town called Ashland? Yes, because <laughs> I'm not correlating it to things that are real. I'm not trying to. I'm trying not trying to rip off uh, Ashland. I'm actually just making up something. 
yeah. new. So I wanted the closest town to be Oconomowoc because I made a promise. I think I mentioned on the podcast, I made a promise to some kids on a book tour for Dandelion Fire. I made a promise to some school children in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, uh, that I was going to start the next series there. And the reason why is because I was in a school uh, making a big deal about how the world is amazing. Every part of the world is amazing. And you don't have to be British in order to have an amazing adventure. And there's fantastic stuff everywhere. And I was telling these kids this in Wisconsin, and they basically like kind of moaned and groaned. And a couple kids were like, yeah, but not here. <laughs> here sucks. <laughs> you know, every, everything exciting is elsewhere. And so I told them there, I made a promise in that classroom in that auditorium, actually, uh, to those kids. I was like, you know what? My next series is starting here. My yeah. next series, because they were all, all about cupboards. And even there, there and I was talking about Kansas and barns and barbecues and baseball and tornadoes and just the weirdness of Kansas. And they were like, yeah, that's not here. Like even Kansas was not, it was not Wisconsin. Yeah. It's like here we have cows and cheese and that's kind of, yeah, you know, that's it. So. I told them Oconomowoc, every other letter is an O. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Five O's. And so I needed to give a shout out to Oconomowoc, Wisconsin and start the next series there. Well, and my nieces are quite thrilled that your books are set in Wisconsin. So, you you know, you're affecting Wisconsin (laughs) school children to this day. Yeah, actually, it is funny. I, I I hear that a lot. I hear that from people in Kansas with cupboards. I hear from the upper Midwest, especially Wisconsin a lot with with Ashtown. So that's why I started there. But this, this mythology behind uh, a monastic order of explorers, that's, it's an order of explorers that's fundamentally religious. It's fundamentally about the struggle between good and evil. And it had this primitive approach, you know, to how we're going to deal with these dark monsters through mythology and history, like these different really bad things that have happened. Because you can't kill them. Yeah, you can't kill them. And they're unkillable. So how do you beat them ever? Like, well, you take them to Wisconsin and you bury them. <laughs> Extremely deep in the ground. <laughs> yeah. And you put them and the burials are um, liturgical. The burials are um, Solomonic in that way. Like there's charms. There's things that they can't break. There's things that control yeah, some of these. Magic. There's some magic involved. Um, and so, and there's also just physical prisons. So there are people who are hybrids. So Rasputin being an example, somebody who's kind of a hybrid versus something that's just spiritual. Something that's just purely spiritual is contained differently than something that's biological, fleshly, but hybridized, you know, like a Nephilim. Um, and you've got a new name for them, right? Yeah, the, tra- the trans mortals, which, you know, I wrote before all the trans stuff was like the oh, cutting yeah. edge, the yeah. cutting edge issue. And it's funny that I, I jumped into these mortals who try to become trans mortals, which means they try to transition to immortality. There are immortals that are just made that way, you yeah. know, Archangel Michael, uh, demons, fallen demons, that kind of stuff. And then there are trans mortals, which are hybrids or, you know, tuck everlasting. <laughs> yeah. That kind of stuff. Right. Ponce de Leon yeah. uh, is a trans mortal. So Gilgamesh is a trans mortal. Right. Uh, and so I pull all these. Yeah, if you like Easter eggs, then, oh, gosh. then the yeah. trans immortals are full of them. Yeah, full uh, of mythological. Yeah, so look for the doors and in, in hunter cupboards, and look for the trans mortals. Yep, in the Ashtown series, and a lot of. Uh, so I built the world and the concept of the Order of Brendan and Brendan the Navigator founding this Order of Explorers, and then that gave me, like cupboards, gave me a ton of potential to bounce through a bunch of different worlds to a bunch of different places. That gave me access to every story I could ever want to tap into. Yeah. You know, when there's a, a monastic order of explorers, that means they've gone everywhere. They've, they've touched everything. And I could jump in and out of Persian mythology or African mythology or, you know, Northern European mythology. I could go wherever I wanted. I think you've got, even got some, some Russian. What, what would we oh, call absolutely. It? Slavic mythology. Cyrillic. Cyrillic, <laughs> there we go. Some, some Cyrillic influence. Oh, she's very scary. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's some very, there's some very scary. I don't know how to say her name. Bob Katha. Oh yeah, there's there's some there, but there's also just Celtic, you know, Celtic war goddesses and ancient. Oh yeah, ancient stuff. 
So they're the I, kind of thing you read the myth about them and you feel uncomfortable because like, it is Ew. so bad. Yeah. It's just it's just this whatever they're interacting with was pure evil <laughs> and uncontrolled by anything. <laughs> yep. And actually, that character, although she doesn't show up till later in yeah. the series, that's a um, a perfect place. We'll t- we'll talk later and later about uh, authorial authority. Yeah, and that plays into the Latin. That plays into the other stuff we were promising to talk about because right. People have been saying, shouldn't it be bad? I'm like, you know, it should be babbed. It's babbed. It's way easier to say. Yep. I need I need 10-year-olds to be able to say it. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, but uh, so you you built the whole system of the prison, prisons yeah. mythology. The concept first. of Ashtown, this place. Yeah. yeah. When, did, when did the school aspect of it come in? Because I think most people, that's something they pick on quickly. Yeah. So I didn't want it to be, I wanted it to be an order as opposed to like a, a a medieval slash slash chivalric order, which then became modernized. Like the industrial revolution hit it in the same way that it hit everything else. And so you have the systems of promotion and entrance and acolyte to journeyman, mm. uh, to explorer, to keeper, you know, to sage, to Brendan. You have the, you know, they have this whole hierarchy of, of um, ranks in this order. And in order to get through those ranks, you're not going through school years. You're not just, you're not going to classes. It's on you. And there's a clock set. So you're an acolyte and you have a certain amount of time to become a journeyman or to wash out. You know, when you're a journeyman, you have certain things that must be accomplished before you can, you can move up. And when you're an acolyte, you have to be somebody's acolyte. You actually have to have a keeper. So there is, you, you know, who is your keeper in the order of, Brendan, that's the person responsible for your training and your testing uh, for promotion. So it's not a school in that sense. It's a it's a far more medieval setup. Yeah. Which is also like being a plumber. <laughs> you know, right. it's like vocational. I'm be, yeah, I'm gonna be a journeyman. It's like, well, so I set out to have these I've these two kids who live in a rundown motel, uh, you know, truck stop motel that they inherited and their mom's in a coma and dad's gone. Um their older brother's taking care of them. They're living in the Archer Motel. And this is the book Book one I decided to really frame off of Treasure Island. And so, you know, where Treasure Island begins in the Admiral Benbow Inn, this one starts at the Archer, uh, the Archer Motel. Uh, Treasure Island starts with Billy Bones showing up, and I have William Skelton uh, shows up with his bone tattoos all over. His skeleton is tattooed on the outside of his body. Uh, goes by Billy Bones shows up to the archer. And so I, I kick off, I use kind of the, the early framework. I've got a, a Long John Silver character that I adore. I really like a, a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I, I play with that as like, well, you're getting sucked into a giant adventure. Right. You know, that kind of entry point to this giant adventure. Uh, but once the kids show up, they discover that they actually, as they inherit of the position of acolyte is to become acolytes in the order of Brendan. And they show up to Ashtown as acolytes. They need a keeper and they also have to, uh, they have to perform, they have to learn and they have to learn at their own initiative. They have to be trained uh, to even stay in. Like they're simultaneously on an adventure. They have to survive this adventure and this big struggle between good and evil. But they also could wash out of the order really easily by Mm. not getting better at Latin. <laughs> um, so I did that. Some and then might I, accuse you of hypocrisy yeah, for, that right? later, <laughs> for that later part. <laughs> yeah. No, that's actually where the humor comes in. Um, so it's, uh, which I don't want to give away too much from the silent bells, but that's going to finally pay off in the silent bells. Is it? Okay. Cyrus is, is Cyrus is, uh, so Cyrus and Antigone Smith, these, this brother sister combo uh, show up, they're acolytes in the order of Brendan. They are despised immediately. Mm-hmm. And this is because I wanted to tease the wish fulfillment of welcome to this amazing secret society. But no, you're not Harry Potter, where everybody is like, ooh, you're famous and you destroyed Voldemort and you're super special. I wanted to have it be this great reversal of welcome to Ashtown, welcome to the order of Brendan, this where ancient order of explorers where you suck and we hate you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like, you're resented and we hate you. And the reason why is because your dad was actually a member and he got kicked out. So your dad was expelled from this order 
You're yeah. de- you're descended from outlaws. You're descended from people who were thrown out of this order of explorers, and you guys just snuck back in, and so they're just super resented. And they so you have this giant kind of like climbing wish fulfillment, and they show up and they get thrown in the basement, and through a technicality, uh, somebody who's the descendant of uh, Cecil Rhodes, whom we all hate. I love pulling in different explorers right. who on both sides of the light and dark spectrum in terms of good and evil. But he uses a technicality to get them forced to uh, pursue promotion through the order uh, via much older standards and guidelines. Like, More stringent. Like, like everything else, the order of explorers has been rotting and grade inflation has been happening here. Uh, the bar is being lowered. So these people like Cyrus and Antigone have to achieve, you know, an, an increase, just an incredibly difficult standard so if you look back at like the yeah the standard for harvard in the 1600s you right know, it's impossible to even think about achieving that yeah you know, it's how just, many books they read how many languages they knew yeah it's just ridiculously difficult so i'm just trying to bounce like pre-world war one like pre-world war one standards for the order of explorers that they have to they have to hit and it's just outrageous with one good twist is that it turns out that they also only owe their order dues um, on pre-World War I rates as well, <laughs> which is a friend in the order points that out. And so they, they don't have to pay the tens of thousands of dollars a year that's required for membership for hangar fees and boat fees and everything else for the explorers. They're pre-World War I. So they're stuck in the basement, this horrible place called the Polygon, uh, infested with whip spiders and a squatter. A transmortal squatter who's living down there named Nolan, one of my favorite characters. Yeah, he's great. Uh, so they get thrown in the basement and have to work their way up. And so, uh, I think also one of the things that strikes you right as soon as you read Ashtown, especially if you head in from Hundred Cupboards, is how different Cyrus is from Henry as a yeah. character. Uh, Cyrus is so comfortable with just really ticking people off. Yeah, and he doesn't. And you know where Henry's very retiring. Yep. Cyrus is the, uh, all, you know, the so Henry, opposite. Henry York in cupboards is overprotected, right? He's had, he's emotionally dysfunctional because he's had extremely dis- distant parents, like parents who tried to replace themselves with rules and boarding and school, boarding <laughs> school and governesses and protection and helmets and, you know, car seats and that kind of stuff. So yeah. he's this, he's white grass as he's described in cupboards. He's grass that's been grown under a board. Cyrus is feral. Yeah. You know, he is just. He is a kid who's been living without parents, making do in a motel, skipping school, eating waffles nonstop. Yeah, living off of waffles and, you know, just doing whatever he feels like, gluing his locker shut at school. He just doesn't give a rip about authority. So he's a, he's a very, very feral kid. And he has to actually find a completely different relationship to structure and rules and learning and authority because he's, he's in that. Uh, frame he is more outlaw which cuts with the grain of his dad was a member of this order and got kicked out um and they discover he got kicked out for actually marrying their mom so mm. you know the, the oh, yeah, marriage later on yeah we discover but it's anyway the point is cyrus is very much a different side of a different side of the coin from and henry. then and then talk about antigone because henrietta it feels like, you know, you do the same thing where you have the alternating point of view as yep. from, from the author perspective, you yep. know, you have, uh, it allows you to really, but I feel with Ashtown, you push it even farther. So you get them very far apart. Yeah. And it feels like, although Henrietta and Henry are sell- sometimes in different worlds, Yep, they're all part of the same kind of storyline. Yep. And they're briefly, Henry and Henrietta are, are briefly separated. Yeah. And they, they go on their own little micro loops. Yeah. But they're two sides of one coin. Right, and they're very, very close. Two sides of one coin. Antigone and Cyrus get swept up on the same adventure, and initially they're pretty close together. They stay close for a while, but their relationship is older, uh, more deeply ingrained. You know, they're siblings, not cousins who just met. Yeah, and they've been through hell together. Yeah, they've already been through hell together. Which means their mom's in a hospital, their dad's yep. dead, and their older brothers. You know taking the brunt of trying to, you know, protect them. But Antigone is very afraid of how feral her brother is, meaning 
she's very worried for him. Yeah. Uh, and afraid, not afraid of him, but afraid for him and protective of him, but protective of him with no ability to protect. Yeah. So she has no way to protect him. Uh, no chance of protecting him, but still has all these maternal urges. Which means she pretty much just chirps. <laughs> yeah. She's, so she's there and he he should listen to her, but the, it's just kind of futile. <laughs> like it's, yeah. So Antigone sees things more clearly than Cyrus does and would do a better job at the steering wheel than Cyrus would, but she can't take that. She just can't take it from him. And she throws down pretty hard and succeeds in different places. But that dynamic is one that's very real. Uh, he's feral. He doesn't have a father figure who can sit on him, who can steer him, who can uh, yeah. teach him how to use Help this. Help launch him on this. Yeah, teach him path, how, to, yeah. how to use his aggression where aggression's called for, where it's not, where hard work's called for, where it's not. Uh, and so Antigone and Cyrus have, have uh, a relationship I love. You know, it's, a, it's one that I really, really enjoy writing. Uh, deeply loyal to each other because they're the only ones they've had and their older brother dan has been you know the he's been the only parent they've had you know it's like but they're not close to him in the same way he's this protective older brother but who's mostly just down sad failing frustrated with himself um and they have this super tight relationship where cyrus is younger but bigger yeah she's smarter but smaller and can't can't control him uh so they're fire breathing friends deeply loyal to each other and yet you know there's a lot of friction there and i i enjoy that relationship a lot and i named her antigone um a because i like the name b because the nickname tiggs is such a great one coming from a little brother uh but c also mythically because antigone's story in greek mythology is one of of absolute loyalty to her brother you know, it's like it's she is the one who will risk everything to honor her brother and protect her brother and fears for the loss of her brother. Uh, and ultimately, her own doom is trying to honor the memory of her brother. And so that's where uh, the name came from yeah. for her. So they, they get swept up. They go off to Ashtown and they have to start training. Uh, and it was very important to me that uh, the stuff they have to accomplish is stuff that you can accomplish stuff mm. that can be accomplished the the things that they must achieve in order to be promoted through this order are in fact achievable okay and so they you are achievable want... things for kids their age it's actually possible it's incredibly hard but it is oh, a doable the shooting thing. the flying the languages yeah you know learning getting your pilot's license swimming running training fitness yeah and then academics yeah. latin translation two languages yeah. fencing you know it's all this and stuff. cyrus hates school which yeah. is is that is that a channel of did you hate school with that passion that cyrus has yeah but i definitely inflated it oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> i would say there were there were periods of my life where i hated school that much uh the, the most passionate period being in your dad's classroom in fifth grade <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's and it was uh I mean, my parents tell me it was only a couple of weeks. It was like two to two to four weeks where I was in full on out and out rebellion uh, in school in fifth grade. But so Cyrus is a little older than that. And I take that. I, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to go in a total uh, a rampage rampage against uh, academic structure. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, many rules were invented at our school right after you know, I did something. <laughs> and so like what? I'm trying to remember. I feel like I heard about them, but I, you know, I pressure washed a classmate at lunch at the adjoining car wash. <laughs> you know, it's like children shall not use the pressure washer. During the children school hours. shall not go to the car wash with quarters on lunch, <laughs> which is what I did. But uh, you're like, he, hey, I, I, paid, I, remember, I paid for it. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. I remember sitting in the principal's office drenched. The two of us had gone down there and, and, you know, fed the guns, fed the big, the big water guns and had just gone at it <laughs> and like middle of the school day. Uh, but yeah, so I've, I've a Children friend shall stay on campus. I have, yeah, I've, lunch, exactly. Yeah. I have a friend yeah. who's on the school board with me now of that school. And, you know, I know, I know both of us could scurry right up onto that roof. We could get on that roof and no, no time flat. 
Right. Um, you know, it's like, that's, I, I, uh, there's, there are plenty of things. Um, yeah, no, but it's, um, anyway, I can relate to that. So what I did is I took that little period of my life, that brief period of my life and, and inflated it. There was one moment, remember your dad saying, uh, for those of you who are only just joining us at episode 33, Brian Cole, my co-host of this podcast was born while I was in fifth grade, while his dad was my fifth grade teacher. And, uh, this was the period of my life where I had my great academic rebellion. We should just add that intro to the start of the story yeah, of every podcast. Time. So we, so anybody joining late realizes the weirdness of, <laughs> of this dynamic. So <laughs> then, uh, I remember your dad saying, you know, like you finish whatever it was, uh, some worksheet, some math or something, then it's a free period. Like implication being read whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. So I finished it and kind of successfully communicated with my buddy who also finished it. It was like, okay, we're, we're out of here. And we successfully, when he turned his back, successfully got out of the classroom without being noticed. And then snuck down to my dad. Well, it wasn't far, but to my dad's office, which was uh, in the school building at that time. And he was working on a sermon. I remember going in there and looking at his computer and the sermon outline was up on the screen. And like Microsoft three or something, the blue screen, white type on it. And my buddy and I are sitting there, I'm like, ah, like we I know I can turn on Snipe, this video, this old video game, but I don't know how to get there from here. So I just like turned the computer off. It was like just cut the power and then turned it back on, lost my dad's sermon, like deleted my dad's sermon outline, and then pulled up uh Snipe, this old uh, PC game and I was steering and he was shooting or this, uh, you know, one of those two things, mm. uh, running through this maze, shooting enemies. When my dad walked in his office, like, what are you guys <laughs> middle of the school day? It's a free period. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> Mr. Cole said when we were done, we could do whatever. Yeah. So rather than asking if that means leaving the classroom, deleting a sermon outline and playing video games, right. we just did it. So that was my Cyrus period. That yeah. was my, my Cyrus Smith phase of life. That's good to know. Yeah. So that was brief. Uh, it involved some intense discipline. It was around the same time I remember telling my parents I was done with school. Just done. <laughs> I remember the conversation just being like, you know, it's been great. I kind of am bored. Um, I know everything I need to know. Like, thanks. I wish my dad had told me more of these stories so that I would have helped drive my April Fools and other shenanigans at school as well. You know? Absolutely. We've known which direction to go. <laughs> so it's uh it's all very funny to but Cyrus is definitely the a character who's closest yeah. uh to myself. But um I wasn't always that bad. I had parents, I had a father figure. <laughs> right. Uh, but I I did I do channel it. So my Aunt Delia, my publisher, convinced me to take this shot of a, a big literary but commercial series. Um, I built the concept of the Order of Brendan and the world and the transmortals and everything else. And then I built Cyrus and Antigone and their situation. And then, uh, you know, the villains as well. Uh, and, you know, got started. And I went through five drafts to get the first book right. And wow. Uh, in that time, my publisher retired. Uh, the current publisher uh, at Penguin Random, uh, Mallory, Mallory Lore, uh, whom I also like a lot, read early draft. I think she read like draft three and kicked it back to me with like some big challenges. Hmm. Uh, and I'm really grateful to her for doing that. I think the whole thing improved Maybe this is radically. Just me industry-wise, but what, what kind of challenges she hit you with? Just are they the character stuff or world-building things? Timing, rhythm, pace, escalation in the timing of, of timing of that escalation. So yeah. I'd say the the book really widened its stance. I mean it went from I was I was planning to write 70 to 80,000 word of uh, volumes and it became you know 90 to 110. Hmm. Uh, after that, like needing to needing to sp spread itself out and take its time a little bit. Uh, I still wanted it to be fast, like go, 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 Indiana Jones pacing. And uh, she was great with that, but she really challenged me to kind of like enflesh things more. 
uh more about the world a little more rhythm to the rules mm. um you know like it just letting the reader learn more mm. you know taking the taking beats and yeah i think it improved radically the book improved a lot after that in those last two drafts that explains why yeah that explains why they're thicker I yeah. guess, which is the kind of the what people feel because oftentimes they'll move from hunter cupboards to to ashtown yep there's some who start with ashtown and then move to hunter cupboards yeah. and like i've said before the the ashtown fans are the fire breeders they're the ones who are um just the meanest to me <laughs> <laughs> um and what i mean by that is just impatient and but also the most supportive so you know i say the meanest and, and kind of facetiously right um they they are all about it and it surprises me because i hear from them often it, it surprises me to see when people have that same passion elsewhere you know it's like when they i you know i said they pick their their series and say this is the one and i wish you'd only write 100 coverage books or i wish you'd only write ashtown books or i wish you'd only write outlaws at time uh, and i just say just can you just like all of them could you just <laughs> read them all and, and they all say yeah sure you know, in that conversation, it's like, yeah, I read the other ones, but I read them as a break in between, you know, the reads that I really care about, which is this series or that series. So Ashtown was different enough from Cupboards that Cupboards fans are like, whoa, you know, like this is, this is new. And then, uh, but its own, it, it engaged readers in a different way who then like kind of backflowed into Cupboards as well. You know, mm -hmm. they came to, Right. Came to cupboards through Ashtown or came to Ashtown through cupboards. And uh, I love it. I love the series. I love writing it. I've, I've greatly enjoyed being back in it with book four. Uh, yeah. And, and that, I think Cyrus and, and Antigone yeah. have a dynamic and the world is set up in a way that um, it's really paid off well. And I'm super grateful that it's, it's gone the way it has. And thematically, the stories were set up to enable me to talk about stuff and work through issues and themes on a theological level that coverage didn't you know i coverage it's there but ashtown it's so overt it's so on the skin the religious themes the religious questions because it's an it's a religious order and it's a religious order that has these old liturgies that are still powerful yeah but they've lost the you know they've lost their life it's this kind of rotten old a religious institution that's very, very, should be very familiar to people who live right now. So you step into something with a, an ancient tradition that's squandering it. Okay, I have a random question from yeah. someone. Uh, this is from Emma. What were the, apparently they're architecture nerds, I don't know. What okay. were the architectural influences for the construction of Ashtown? And they want a map of Ashtown. Oh, they want a map of Ashtown, do they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think your readers have sensed the the absence of your fire breathing publisher and have decided to step into that void. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they want there is a map of Ashtown. I'm not sharing it. I've I drew maps. I fully drew maps. I needed to draw maps so that I could plan okay. uh what I was doing. But um it's a big tangled thing so the influences are basically global think about a, a society that's medieval it was at its heyday this little you know this this uh society Settlement. of explorers yeah it was at its heyday in the middle ages but they were everywhere and they went everywhere and brought and, back stuff from they everywhere brought back stuff. all the continents so yeah, yeah so there's there's influences of all sorts in ashtown but Brandon was Northern European, but the influences of like the Galleria are heavily Byzantine and, yeah. you know, and, and that kind of, uh, design. And I was looking at Byzantine places, you know, Byzantine cloisters, medieval cities and so on when I was describing different parts the Hagia of Hagia Sophia type style. Yeah. I, I, there's a place called Mistra that I've always been fascinated with. It's a, a Byzantine city, small Byzantine city, places like that. But then also you get down into Italian, Italian influences and, you know, that, which means Greek. But basically I, everywhere, you know, just okay. pulling stuff from everywhere, pulling woods from everywhere, door designs from everywhere. 
stone okay. stonework. Like these are people who have traveled the entire globe. The statues along the roof are inspired by the Vatican, uh, specifically inspired by home video footage that my grandfather took on the roof of the Vatican before he was removed by the Swiss guard, <laughs> <laughs> proving that he too is related to Cyrus Smith. <laughs> um, it's, that's an amazing clip. Um, starts with him down in the square looking up at the Vatican and then it cuts and he's a little higher looking down at the square and he looks back up above him and then it cuts and he's a little higher and then it cuts and he's a little higher and then pretty soon he's on the roof and he's up on the roof of the Vatican with these giant angel statues and there's my eight-year-old uncle up there with him waving in that rapid eight millimeter speed um, and then he turns and films the Swiss guard, <laughs> the guy coming to get him off the roof. Um, That's funny. Yeah. Well, while we're here on architecture, they, what about Hilfing? Okay, jumping back jumping to Jumping back to cupboards. They, they want to compare. They're in the middle of an argument, apparently. So They want to compare what? Like, the compare the Ashdown influences to Hilfing and, and what's going on with these two cities. Um, I, it's a, it's, I don't know that the comparison works quite as well because Hilfing is, feels... Well, they're trying to decide basically is Hilfing more, you know, what, what did they say here? Is it more of an Oriental thing? That's their question. No. Or Eastern Mediterranean? Uh, Hilfing is, again, because it's in a different world. Right. So it has Northern European influences, but Mediterranean. Gotcha. Uh, and I would say one of the biggest influences if Hilfing is uh, a restaurant in Oxford uh, called Pizza Express. <laughs> very mediterranean and not even joking it's ancient i mean this is from the time of chaucer and you go into this pizza restaurant and the floor is just rolling and there's these giant black beams and it's this you know really awesome i assume it's hay bale construction between the beams that's plastered over and it's rad i mean it's just it's just rad but there you go seeing the old the old graffiti carved into the timbers and so the idea of medieval this, it's definitely Mediterranean in the stonework in Hilfing. Uh, absolutely Mediterranean, but the, there's a lot of beamed, uh, timbered construction too that's Northern European that's more residential. Yeah. So if you think about the city works of Hilfing, not even joking, this is how I thought through it. The, the actual city structures of Hilfing are, again, Byzantine and mm -hmm. then uh, more Northern European on the residential street-to-street -street timber structure. So, I think you've said this before, but you do think through yeah, <laughs> think through everything. I kept expecting you to say, "I don't know." I didn't. I hadn't <laughs> thought through that. But no, he has. <laughs> he has visual references. <laughs> yeah, but it's part of that is because I'm writing to my own affections. Yeah, and that's just okay. You know, I'm. I. It's not like I'm just researching stuff. It's that I'm just being an author is about being distracted a lot of the time and reading about stuff that's not relevant to your current project, but then turns out to be relevant to your current project. As soon as you find something you really like, yeah, and, thanks, you, and you say, I'm going to work that in. I'm mm. going to, you know, I'm going to weave that into this story. I'm going to actually, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do Gilgamesh and I'm going to make him like a 1970s NFL player. And, you know, the, that's what I'm going to do. And he's also a villain. Yeah. And then, but then not, but then is, but then's not, you right. know, he's, but, um, and the same thing with architecture. I think the, the story of the Byzantine Empire is a giant tragedy. And the Byzantine Empire is itself a collision of influences. Right. You know, so. It's, it's the gateway between, you know, Asia and Europe. Yep. And, and also the Islam. ancient world and the modern world. Yeah. And Islam and, and, the, and Christianity. Yeah. yeah. So you. Every are, level. Yeah. You're running into a lot of North African and Muslim influences in art and tile and design. And then you're also, you know, bringing in the Greek, obviously, but colliding with the East. Um, and also with the traditional European, like it's all colliding. And I think that's what I, that is what I was doing with Hilfing. That's definitely what I'm doing with Ashtown. Oh, there you go. You know, so Ashtown is this place where explorers have been journeying the globe forever, bringing back stuff. So it's only natural that the influences would be, you know, diverse, wildly diverse. And I, I incidentally, I was doing that before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> and i got rebuked at an event at the new york public library by somebody who was saying your main characters are multiracial and that's bad because if they were multiracial that would be the only thing the story focused on and was really kind of fixated on would be their them grappling with their identities 
but you their ethnic identities you refuse to grapple with ethnic identity it's there i mean like it's their mom's origin is there but it's not a it's it is a b story it is not the a story and so they grapple with real villains yeah with real villains and with their relationship as brother and sister and as you know as son and daughter to a particular woman and then also with bitterness versus forgiveness and trust to one of their dad's oldest friends um you know it's like it just right and i think with their mission is a big part of what you're setting up how how you come to grips with a job that seems too hard right (laughs) yeah Uh, wait it's too hard yeah you know what do we do wait we're supposed to do what with our lives Uh, yeah you know you they kind of they don't have a group of other friends doing normal things but all of that is stuff we'll jump into in books two and three and then yeah we'll talk more about it but so the the big setup around dragon's tooth was just trying to build um you know trying to build this world and these characters in a way that once i'd constructed enormous and awesome adventures could happen and it opened doorways to me pulling in stories and characters and myths that i liked from anywhere yeah yeah which is why this is an order of explorers and not an you know an order of sculptors <laughs> you know this <Yeah>. is <laughs> they've been everywhere and they've they you know been in touch with every different narrative and it's enabled me to to jump all over the globe uh in terms of influences but also literally in a way that i've really enjoyed so the dragon's tooth the last thing i'll say is the dragon's tooth itself the shard the tip of the dragon's tooth that is key in this story i also really wanted it to be small and for the same reason i was drawn to making the cupboard small in cupboards uh, in the 100 cupboard stories it's like bitty dragon tooth here's this thing that's like mythically giant really big in import and really really big in terms of its impact and what it can do but it's in fact small and kind of underwhelming when you look at it like this is but it matters a lot I think we need a whole episode on dragons, but that'll be next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, there we go. Dragon's Tooth. Read it, like it. I'm finishing the series, so you won't be one of the many despairing who hit book three and say, what, what, what happens next? Oh, well, they'll find out. Eventually. Peace. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories of Soul Food, get your copy of The Dragon's Tooth today at canonpress.com.